The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawkbox. Let's get into your headlines. A surprise cut in oil supplies sends the price 8% higher. OPEC plus cutting oil output by more than a million barrels per day in what they argue is a bid to stabilize the market. The Nasdaq enjoys its best quarter in almost three years as global equity markets brush aside rising interest rates and a banking crisis to close the quarter in the green, while Asian markets this morning kicking off the second quarter mostly higher. Swiss prosecutors probe UBS's government-backed takeover of Credit Suisse. A report suggests the new bank could cut up to 30% of its workforce. China's factories falter in March, with a private survey showing activity falling to a neutral level amid concerns over global demand. Tesla deliveries jump 4% to a new record in the first three months of this year, but they miss estimates as production outpaces demand. We kick off the trading week with a big story in the commodities market, but one that could stretch towards politics as well as Saudi Arabia and other OPEC plus members have announced a surprise voluntary production cut of more than one million barrels per day in a move the bloc says is aimed at supporting market stability. The White House hit out of the move, saying it doesn't think it is advisable, considering uncertainty in markets. The cut will come into effect from next month and last until the end of the year. Goldman Sachs says the move will see Brent prices reach $95 per barrel by then. And if you keep in mind where we are now traveling on prices, we have stepped up, as you can see, fairly significant percentage jump of more than 5% on both Brent and WTI that has taken us to the 83.96, just shy of 84 handle on Brent. And as you can see on WTI perched just off the $80 mark. So certainly a step up from some of the lows that we've witnessed even in recent weeks around banking contagion. Those fears that we saw in the financial sector just stretching across to commodities and particular oil amid concerns that a tightening of credit could lead to some sort of slowdown in the economy. So you could see uh, we certainly came off some of those uh, higher levels into a slump earlier this month and uh, earlier in March, I should say. And as you can see, that means uh, the moves that have been taking place between OPEC Plus mean that the price has certainly spiked. A look at the Asian markets in session today. We are seeing the Hong Kong market pull lower down half of 1%. Gains elsewhere, though, modestly firmer for Chinese, Japanese and Australian stocks. Similar range we're witnessing across to U.S. futures and the early indication ahead of the U.S. session is somewhat choppy. As you can see, not too much of a picture in terms of straying from the flat line. So some caution dominating at this hour. Jeff. Terrific, Karen. Thank you so much. Let's get out to Hadley, uh, out in the Middle East for a a little bit more on on what's going on here. Hadley, um, the market obviously was wary about uh, whether we might see some action by OPEC plus at this point but I don't think anybody had figured that it was it it would come uh, ahead of the actual meeting itself tell us a little bit more about what you're hearing in the region as to the reasons why they've pulled the trigger now 
Absolutely, Jeff. I mean, at the end of the day, this is an organization, OPEC Plus, that has been very carefully following what we've been seeing happening in the markets, happening in the banking sector over the last several weeks. In conversations that I've had with His Royal Highness, uh, even two weeks ago when I was in Saudi Arabia off the back of what happened with Credit Suisse, I mean, this was a man who was very much concerned uh, with the fragility he was seeing, frankly, in the global system and what the response ought to be from OPEC Plus as an organization. And what you're seeing happening right now is OPEC Plus really doing what it's meant to do which is to, they say, stabilize the market and to do so at a certain price point, essentially putting a floor under the prices that we've seen over the last couple of weeks and really indicating um, that they were concerned about global growth. They were concerned about the market. They were concerned about demand. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to watch what happens over the next uh, several weeks in particular, what this actually can mean for President Putin in terms of his war machine. I mean, keeping those prices higher, no doubt good for him uh, when it comes to to what he's doing in Ukraine. But at the same point, um, getting an argument already out of Washington. They've already pushed back on this, as Karen was mentioning. They've already said this. they don't think this is a good idea. And certainly for them, it's going to have to uh, to raise serious questions about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Remember, this was an administration, a White House, that has said multiple times that they were going to refill the SPR between $67 and $72 a barrel. We didn't see them doing that. And uh, there are going to be lots of questions about what this means for U.S. energy security as a result of that. We had Emrita Sen on in the last hour, and she was essentially saying, you've got to remember that when it comes to shale production as well. We haven't seen the same levels of production as we saw even last year. And there are concerns, frankly, about what you know U.S. oil majors can actually do to help this situation. That's been an ongoing battle and dialogue, as you know, between the Biden administration and U.S. oil producers. You know, They say they're loath to move forward when they don't believe necessarily that this is an administration that has their back in terms of those long-term investments into spare capacity that uh, everybody who follows energy markets know the world actually is going to need. I also asked Amrita in the last hour, I'm sure you heard, are we going to see prices at $100 a barrel? And she said, you know, we've been banking on that and pricing that in to our models for a long time now. So it wouldn't be that big of a surprise given the volatility we're seeing and the uncertainty that we're seeing. But certainly if you're looking at it purely from an OPEC plus perspective, you know, this is putting a floor under prices, but this is also, you know, taking stock once again, as they have been doing now for weeks and saying, listen, we just don't know where all of this is going and we're going to be as careful as possible. Yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to to your conversation with Amrita and I I thought she made some very interesting points about the inability of the shale industry to respond as tightening uh, financial conditions might make it harder for them to get the credit they need to put more rigs into action here. But Hadley, I wanted to just talk a bit more about the price here because obviously we um, have have seen uh, Amrita talk about $100 a barrel. I think Goldman Sachs have just kicked up their forecast through to December 2024 to $100 a barrel here. So everybody's repricing. But I guess just a reminder of where we've come from, we were $120 a barrel as recently as June of last year here. So it has largely been a, a one-way trend as far as the headline oil prices has, has been concerned. Uh, with here. But my my question is, I mean, there will be those that interpret this as a political move by the Saudis related to the SPR and the unwillingness of the Americans to refill it this year. But it's a big call on the global economy, it seems to me. If you look at it in purely economic and price terms, it would appear to suggest that the Saudis and the economists that they work with believe that recession is almost inevitable for the global economy, or at least we're going to have a a lot slower growth than we currently have. 
that does seem to be reflected in this decision, Jeff, because essentially what you're seeing is a group uh, led by Saudi Arabia in the middle of Ramadan, usually a quiet time, at least for headlines. So they do tend to make some pretty interesting decisions uh, during the weeks of the holy month, as, as you'll recall. Um, this is an organization that's decided ahead of their ministerial meeting to make this call. And we're talking uh, about cuts that are going to last from May until at this point, the end of 2023, that's the call, right? Um, now, they've said that this is a precautionary measure. They've said that this is something that they could certainly revisit. Um, in my conversations with His Royal Highness Prince Abdulaziz, he's always seemed very, very willing uh, to stay on the pulse of things for obvious reasons um, and to move if he finds it necessary. But as you say, making this as a call on the global economy, I think that's absolutely correct. Because you have to remember, of course, that in the conversations that I've had in recent weeks with the Saudis, whether it be the finance minister or others, um, they've literally said to me again and again, Again, you know, we no longer see ourselves as tied to a specific price. Um, obviously, higher oil prices are going to be good for the country uh, for the medium term. But we do understand the concept of price destruction. We are worried about the long term and market stability for us at this point uh, is much more important than necessarily seeing that volatility, obviously, and what that means uh, for their own bottom line going forward. So $100 a barrel isn't necessarily the best place for them to be either. Terrific. Hadley, we're going to wrap it up with you. Thank, thank you so much for that uh, and for helping us understand um, what the drivers of this uh, latest move may be as far as the Saudis are concerned. What's, what's your take here, Karen? Well, a couple of points. I mean, who would have thought that the SVB debacle would have stretched so far to the kingdom? You think about what took place there. First up, uh, SVB uh, is uh, a bank that needs winding up. You see the problems stretch across to Europe, to Credit Suisse. And then the, the problems, of course, take the Saudi investors uh, and means that their investment is written down by a huge amount. And then, of course, uh, this decision around the oil markets, because we saw oil caught up in the banking crisis, the contagion fears as well, because of fears of recession. So I think uh, a story that started in the heart of Silicon Valley has stretched a long way to the kingdom now to this decision that we've seen from OPEC Plus to effectively cut out for number one point. Other point is that there was a lot of talk that there was speculation in the market that uh, a lot of the traders, the oil traders, were shorting oil and that perhaps this was a silver to send a message about how dangerous that would be if OPEC Plus uh, had made a move. And keep in mind, you think about the timing of this, came coming out before a scheduled meeting. So was it one to try and um, douse some water on those speculators that had short positions out there in the market? You think why some of those traders had short positions? Well, we've had uh, a slew of data suggesting that we've got weakness in the economy. We've just seen in the last 24 hours or so, Japan, South Korea, both those markets seeing manufacturing activity contract. Uh, China as well, we've seen some stalling too in the factory level numbers. The United States concerns with interest rates going up. They're going to see even weaker numbers ahead as well. And I think those that have been watching the macro might have put shorts on out there as well as some of the speculative trades trying to get ahead of this story on the economy. That was one, play to, one way to play the trade. So I think OPEC likes to push on an open door. And um, when you see coordination like this, I mean, this is nine countries within the bloc that have all agreed to a, a cut at this stage. And that cut obviously represents a reduction in revenue to them. So they'll be counting on the price rising to ultimately offset the reduction in revenue that they would get from selling less oil at this stage. But I think what OPEC likes to do is to remind the market that it does have the ability to determine the price, even as we've seen significant ramping up of supply from non-OPEC members. The interesting question for me here is ultimately what this now means for the path of interest rates. 
because I, I can see why they may feel that the price of oil is on a one-way move down because of the economic data you've talked about and the fear that recession um, will happen uh, across the global economy through uh, the end of 2023. But we still don't know what impact China and its reopening is going to have on that trajectory. So the jury is still out, I think. I mean, I, I hear what you said about the manufacturing numbers, and we'll see what that ultimately means when we listen to Sam, who's going to join us on that subject. But some of the service-related indicators have actually been more positive, and we do have a sense that the Chinese um, are going back to the restaurants, they are travelling again, they are starting to turn up in other Asian countries spending money. So there is a reopening spend taking place here, which doesn't seem to me to be factored into the idea of the need for cuts at this point in production. But coming back to the, to the bank story, I mean, we obviously got a better inflation print on Friday in the United States that indicates that the Fed may have a little bit more room for a pause here, even if it's unstated at this point. But I just wonder now if with this latest move, OPEC Plus has managed to force the central banks of the Western world into another hike on interest rates at some stage. Yeah, if you think about uh, what we've seen when it comes to some of the pressure on economies as well, I mean, the oil price moving lower has been somewhat supportive of consumers at this stage. And if you think about it, even on the inflation numbers, it is the energy component that has made a difference on some yeah. of those headline numbers that we've witnessed. Yeah, totally. But you know, if you kick it forward, uh, what's, where is the problem still? Food. That is one area where we continue to see inflation. If you unravel the food story, it's often linked to the oil story, the transportation costs, mm. uh, everything that goes into putting the food on the table. Effectively, some of that is an energy story. So we see higher prices for longer, no doubt, when it comes to the food component. And that is an issue as we talk about large quarters of the world that are going through this food crisis still at this point. So I think uh, the problem is certainly there for central banks, but then you could say on the other side, one of the challenging problems they've had is the demand side. They can't get ahead of the consumer demand. It remains so resilient. As you point out on the services side, you're still seeing it. Does a higher oil price take the shine off some of that demand story because you know consumers are funneling more into uh, paying for, for petrol at the pump rather than spending the money elsewhere? And we've seen it through the lens of the Americans. As soon as yeah. that price comes off a bit, they go back to the shops and spend a bit more on other items, other non-discretionary items. Well, I wonder how those traders are going to behave around those shorts here because as we look at the price here, and thank you for putting up the latest price, when we were just talking to Hadley, we were up over 5% on WTI, and we've been up as much as 8% since the announcement. So I do wonder whether we're going to see a settling back in the price here as the traders kind of reassess what the real impact of this is going to be on the supply-demand dynamic. But we'll come back to this story. Many angles to cover. One of the other stories we're very focused on today, UBS's uh, returning CEO, has defended the size of the bank as the Swiss federal prosecutor opens a probe into the takeover of Credit Suisse. This story just runs. We'll tell you about the latest twists and turns in just a moment. And for more on what OPEC surprise cut means for markets, you can check out the Squawkbox podcast.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Yeah, we're well, certainly a big finish to the month of March, wasn't it? I mean, what a volatile trading month we had. So uh, as we talk about window dressing, we're certainly uh, setting the scene for that Friday trade, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, there was definitely a happy ending for those who are long the market for the quarter as a whole. And, um, you know, it, 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 it's extraordinary that we, we've seen the positivity in spite of the headwinds of uh, higher interest rates, in spite of the banking story, which we're going to come on to in just a moment. And now we've got something else in the mix to deal with this uh, shock uh, cut in oil output from OPEC, which again, as we were discussing a little earlier, raises questions about what happens next for inflation. Yeah, certainly no uh, shortage of trading themes for investors. We closed out the uh, week, you could see, and uh, I should say the month and the quarter, the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq stronger into the finish. I mean, this was a six positive session out of seven for the Dow as we closed out that trading week. And over the course of what we saw for the week, a pop of 3.2% for the Dow, about 3.5% on the S&P, 3.3% on the Nasdaq. So certainly very strong across the course of last week. But over the quarter, what a volatile trading uh, quarter it has been, thanks to the issues around SVB that stretched across to the other major banks, regional banks as well. And you can see for the quarter, it was very different fortunes of repositioning around technology as investors got on board the idea that the Fed may be closer to its terminal rate. That put uh, the fresh spotlight back on technology 16 plus percent pop for the nasdaq versus barely positive for the dow by the end of the quarter the s p 500 somewhere in the middle the asian markets picking up on uh, some of this trade you can see it's been mostly a firm session for a lot of these markets from tokyo to shanghai to sydney the exception has been around the hong kong market fading at this stage so slightly weaker in trade over the course of the last quarter, let's just take a look at how the numbers look. 7.5% in the range for the S&P, for the Nikkei, as you see, had wrapped up the first quarter. A little bit less on the Hong Kong market. Some of this, no doubt, down to recent weeks as we've seen this rethink around Alibaba and the reorganisation there. What it means for the technology regulation for Chinese technology companies, that's been a positive catalyst. Shanghai trades up 6% for the quarter. Australia left behind just 2%. Uh, European markets last quarter. Let's take a look. <clears throat> we have saw very strong levels on some of these markets. 14% higher for the FTSE. That is in the range with the Nasdaq. So very strong trade for Italian stocks. The performance across in Germany and France also solid. And you've got to say outpacing a lot of those main markets in the United States from the Dow to the S&P. Double digit returns in the mix of a slight underperformers, the FTSE, just 2.4%. Still positive, but not exactly in the same level as the rest of these boards. The oil story, banking story, are some of the real catalysts behind that FTSE trade. Let's take a look at the opening call early on this is the picture we are chasing for the uh, trade for April this morning you can see a couple of downbeat uh, signals red arrows for both German and Italian stocks slightly positive for the FTSE in the UK and also for the French market in Paris yeah I thought it very interesting to see Hong Kong a little quiet this morning I suspect it's after the rugby seven and so over the weekend <laughs> a lot of pictures floating around on my social media of people having a pretty good time out there in Hong Kong once again at the rugby seven so good to see 
that happening, but obviously a little bit sluggish in the morning, I would imagine. Uh, and fancy dress, you just go as a banker these days after the, the horror I, month that we've had in March? It's, Karen, it's rugby sevens, it's not Halloween. <laughs> you don't want to frighten everybody by going as a banker. I mean, the other interesting thing is it might quieten down a little bit in the Asian trade this week because it's the grave sweeping festival. So I guess we're going to see perhaps um, some of the volume come out of that trade. Uh, let's talk about the banks. The banks were fascinating, weren't they, through the quarter here? So just a reminder of ultimately um, the risk that the market had to stare down through the quarter as a whole here. And you can see the impact that it had across the performance of these major US banks uh, through March. And there wasn't one of them up here on this board that was in positive territory. And uh, if you look at some of those that were perceived to have the largest risk, Wells Fargo, the retail bank, as the market looks at the long tail risk of some of the portfolio uh, positions, uh, the loan book um, down over 20% here. Um, let's, let's talk about the European story. Look, we, we thought that actually we were beginning to move to something of a resolution, at least around the whole Credit Suisse uh, UBS story, but a couple of things have cropped up for us over the weekend. The news that the prosecutors are looking at uh, possible criminal um, uh, charges or at least investigating a slew of agencies that were involved effectively in pushing through the Credit Suisse uh, UBS uh, deal. Um, Credit Suisse ultimately, as you can see in March, that huge loss of value that precipitated the, uh, the merging of these businesses. And of course, we had Sergio Amotti, um, the new old CEO of UBS, answering some of the criticisms as to whether the bank is now ultimately too large. But as you can see here, the performance across these European banks in uh, the month of March was as weak um, if not weaker than we saw in the US session. So even if the initial story came out of the United States with SVB and others, it infected the global banking story by and large. And, and in Europe in particular, where there are still concerns about the way that these banks have um, uh, dealt with the post financial crisis period, you can see that um, there was a hunt and kill mentality in the market around these banks. Um, the Swiss prosecutor story, let's just return to this because I think it's worth spending a little bit more time fleshing out who exactly could be on the hook here. And Jeff, the Swiss federal prosecutor has launched a, a probe into the takeover of Credit Suisse by UBS, a deal broken by Swiss authorities. The watchdog says numerous aspects of the merger should be investigated, but did not outline any details. Swiss politicians have expressed concern over the level of state support offered by the government and the country's central bank. Well, UBS could reportedly cut up to 30% of its workforce after its takeover of Credit Suisse. According to a report in Swiss media, around 11,000 jobs could be affected in Switzerland. Returning CEO Sergio Amotti has sought to play down concerns about the size of the combined bank, telling Italian media that the lender's greater size and scale will now give it global advantage. So are these banks a buy, sell or a hold? Henning Kephart joins us, managing partner at Holly Hedge uh, Consulting. Um, Henning, nice to have you with us this morning. Maybe we could just focus on the banking story for a moment here. What is your uh, call, really, as far as the banks are concerned? Are we out of the woods yet 
on this current phase of the crisis and focus on bank books? Uh, I would say so. Um, what you see in, in Europe definitely is that uh, regulations over the last 10 years, uh, which was introduced, um, actually worked, um, that banks are stable. Nevertheless, I mean, you see that interest rate rises um, can actually create cracks um, in the system. And that's what we saw in the US and that can spill over to the rest of the world. So um, generally speaking, it's a it's a strong reminder that banking business is not riskless and that investors always have uh, to be very skeptical when it comes to banks. Um, I think we had a great party over the last six months uh, because of the rising interest rates. It would look like um, the profitability of especially European banks improves. Um, that might be a different story down the road when you look at the lending books and when actually maybe even um, the deposits will be more expensive, so funding costs will go up. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? The tide has definitely turned in the way that we're looking at the banks because very early on in the rate hiking cycle, everybody thought, well, this will be great for the banks who can ultimately make a whole lot more money here on the spread. But as we've now realised, there's a ticking time bomb in the bank's books, whether that's uh, to do with their loan book or um, whether ultimately there are other reasons why they've got duration exposure at this stage. So does this remain a a long-term suppressant of share prices, do you think? I mean, banks are always a difficult investment. Um, As you know, they need capital when growth is good. Um, They might have problems when you head into a recession. And that's probably where we are at the moment. So um, we haven't seen a lot of write-downs yet. And uh, just a side look to the real estate sector in Europe um, tells you that there might be some problems coming up. So um, I would say that the um, credit quality will deteriorate over the next couple of months. Uh, and we will see more reserve building. And, and that's definitely something which is bringing down the quality of the earnings. So um, generally speaking, in the long run, I think people are better off not investing into banks um, and look for other sectors. Henning, just piecing this together in terms of some of the debt we've seen from the banks that uh, they're unlikely to want to lend out to the real economy too much at this point, given the concerns we've seen across the banking sector. Wall Street Journal is reporting that there's hung debt of 25 to 30 billion. This is debt that was ready to be deployed to leveraged buyouts. And that is also going to be a problem for the banks to offload. But then on the other side, we've seen enormous amount of volatility on markets that can be typically good for the trading portfolios of some of these banks and thick, everything about fixed income and trading, huge swings in fixed income over the month and again on commodities now as well. What does it mean in terms of some of the banking profitability on these different metrics over the course of the first quarter? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, especially for the investment banks, uh, volatility is always a good, um, uh, yeah, uh, it helps for the profitability. um, But um, as a reminder, there are not that many uh, big investment banks in Europe, Um, obviously some of the French. Um, have have a business here and, and Germans and uh, UBS, but um, that's more a business for the US banks. So um, I would say that that's not that helpful. And um, just if you look at European banks, they, they started to go more into um, the other parts of banking. So uh, looking for commissions and um, not the traditional credit uh, books. So that's That's shifting and um, that business might not be as good as it was the last couple of years. 
Henny, I want to ask you a little bit more about interest rates too. As we wake up this morning, we're contending with the news flow that the uh, oil price has now stepped higher as OPEC Plus has cut output again. We've been digesting a slew of data that suggests the inflation challenge has been uh, starting to fade to an extent thanks to the energy price. But if we see this oil price sustained at a higher level given the, the actions by a group of countries, what does that mean in terms of the interest rate from here? Um, I wouldn't overdo that. I mean, the, if you look at the oil price, um, it's pretty stable over the last uh, six months. So we are at the upper range of, of the oil price. Um, I think it's more important to see what the inflation rate generally is doing. If um, food prices, um, as you said, are coming off, um, and that might give the, uh, the central banks more room to stop hiking. I mean, we are not in the, uh, in the cutting phase yet, but uh, stop hiking. Um, and um, make a pause. And that's probably what the market is actually discounting now. Um, for the market in general, um, we, we saw very strong inter- um, strong performance of interest rate sensitive sectors like the IT. It's probably we are going more into a rotation phase now. So other sectors like pharma which is or healthcare, which uh, was not doing that well this year so far, uh, might actually catch up a little bit. Um, and make it possible to move um, the markets further higher. Um, it's uh, valuations are stretched, so that's uh, it's not that easy um, to actually find the next catalyst. But um, I would say, especially the the interest rate environment is easing, and um, we're going into a pause phase. Let's um, let's talk about some of the other calls you've got here, Henning. I think the audience uh, would like to hear about this. Small caps offer value, you say. Prefer Asia over Europe growth over value and look for structural trends like digitization, automization and climate change at this stage. Is, is, is it, um, how do I put this, do you think the, the, the fog of war is clearing enough to show us that there is a meaningful refocus on some of these um, key trends for example, climate change, for example, uh, digitization uh, and cloud and so forth. Have the markets become rational again about refocusing on these uh, longer term stories? I mean, I guess we will see further volatility down the road, but um, nevertheless, these structural trends then uh, will emerge again, especially when you look at valuation of the market. So there's no real catch up potential here. So you you really have to uh, to look at genuine growth uh, that you normally get in, uh, from structural trends. So that's why uh, we would actually focus on these kind of trends, which are very strong. Um, they don't actually show in profitability like you can see in the uh, wind turbine uh, producers and so on. They have uh, pretty big problems uh, with their margins, but over time that will that will ease and uh, improve. So so that's why it's important to uh, to really look at these structural trends. Uh, when markets are actually priced at relatively high valuations. Um, if you look at small caps, it's quite interesting. I mean, th- you see that the market at the moment is really focusing on the large caps and the mega caps. They are driving the markets. Um, small caps are completely out. So so there's no liquidity. Um, sometimes even uh, great fundamental developments are not reflected in price, um, in, in price developments. It's actually the opposite. There's a lot of frustration with management and these kind of companies. So uh, if you have time and um, you can pick up some some really quality companies uh, with great earnings and great developments, uh, but you need time because uh, obviously small caps are companies which are normally performing well when you have a risk on phase and not, we are not there yet. 
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.